Hear God's word, inerrant, infallible. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Again, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures always. Father, thank you. (coughs) Thank you so much for the truths of this passage, from the practical comfort (coughs) to the doctrine that undergirds it. We pray now that you might uh, give us ears to hear, that you might keep us alert. We might not fall prey to the, the late time of the day and our, as our bodies begin to, to slow down, but rather that we might be energized by your spirit to hear and to be enlivened by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I said this morning in the introduction, I wanted us to back up and look at some of the doctrine that is sprinkled through this passage that began back in chapter 2, verse 13, and follows through this entire chapter. And uh, so these are some of the things we're looking at that would be akin to walking through the forest and uh, or looking... You know, at the overlook, Carol and I ran up to the mountains late Friday afternoon, spent the evening, and had a wonderful meal at the at the Buckhorn Inn, and then uh, did some time around the mountains yesterday. As we drove back, we uh, instead of going like we usually do around the river road through Townsend and 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 home, we went out through Newport, and we skipped over the the the, the parkway to the interstate, and we stopped at one of the overlooks and watched it snow on camera 
and uh, it was it was a beautiful scene as the snow as the snow came blowing through the mountains there and and it already laid a nice layer of snow uh, and it's one thing for you to stop and at an overlook and look at the beauty but then as you get into the mountains you want to pay attention to the details what you may be walking upon what you might step on those beautiful wildflowers and the moss and the lichen on the trees and all those kind of things and so it's it's the same when we read the scriptures we don't want to just look at it from from an overlook standpoint as we did last week we want to look at it uh, look at some of the details that are integral to the whole, uh, in this case, theosystem. In the forest, it's the ecosystem, but here it's the theosystem that we want to pay attention to. All these theological doctrines that are here that are part of the practical pastoral notes of the Bible. So this morning, we saw Scripture again. We looked at that doctrine of Scripture, and we looked at then as well, as I said, Satan and his activity, while it's limited, is still real. Um, but also the relationship of Satan and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ pointed out in verse 19. So tonight we're going to pick up there with God's sovereignty and the fact that while God is sovereign, he also uses second causes. Now, if you want to, you, you can turn with me back to the, near the back of our, our Trinity hymnal. And you'll see in chapter 26, that's on page 864 of our hymnal, the chapter uh, on, no, it's, I'm sorry, wrong page number. Let's back up. The chapter on Providence, chapter 5, page 851. I'll just read the first two paragraphs to get us uh, to get us acclimated here to what I want us to talk about. Uh, it says this: God, the great Creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least, by His most wise and holy providence, according to His infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now, that, of course, rests upon the previous chapter of creation, where we learn that God was pleased to, to make out of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. And now we're, we're reading that, okay... This God, the same God who created it all, he didn't just wind it up and now he's letting it run its course. He's actively involved in the details of life, his created world. Paragraph 2, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, God's the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet... By the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. 
God in his ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. Well, we're the means in the case of the gospel message and the work God would have on this earth, redemptively speaking. We're the means that's referred to there in paragraph 3. We're also the second causes. Now we get into other areas of life outside of redemption. There are other second causes God uses. We get into the scientific, into the medical. There are other causes that God uses infallibly, by the way. Did you notice that? As God is in all things infallible in what he does. We don't always understand it or see it, but that's the case. But God is sovereign, and this includes second causes and means. The Bible's replete with this truth that God is the creator of all things. Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created. He made it all. We go to John chapter 1. The Word, who was with God and who is God. And nothing came to be that he did not make. You just can't get around the fact that he's the creator. Uh, we, we don't live in a world of, of happenings. We live in a world of God and God doing. Um, Colossians 1.16 tells us that uh, our God, in fact, we're so close, just turn back there to chapter 1, verse 15. We read, He's the image, He being Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then it says this, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the creator, but he's also the one who holds it all together. That's providence. That's what we just read about in our confession because our Bible tells us this. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I'll read that for you. You're familiar with it. It's there, not very deep into the Sermon on the Mount from our Lord. Chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 43. Uh, we read, not in Luke chapter 5, sorry about that. Chapter 5, verse 43, we read these words. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that, here's the purpose of loving your enemies and praying for them. So that. You may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We'll just stop right there. 
That's the point, isn't it? That's providence. Now, I want to go ahead and say something that I've never said in this pulpit before. But you, some of you are, are practicing theologians, and you've perhaps thought about this before. And maybe by the time you got out on Sunday, you forgot to ask me. But, but you may have wondered why you've never heard me say the words common grace. And the reason is, is I don't believe there is such a thing as common grace. I think there's special grace that saves men from sins, and I think there's providence, which arranges all things and works all things together, like our confession says. You'll look from now on in our confession to find the words common grace, and you won't find them, because it's not a doctrine of the Reformed faith until later on. We believe in providence, because grace is associated with salvation. But when we read there in chapter 5 that God makes his son to rise on the evil, on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust, that's God's providence. That's not grace. There's nothing saving about that. Grace is in, in response to sin problem. Providence is over all men and dispenses good and bad to all men. So there's my short answer to why you've never heard me use those phrases. But Colossians, holding all things together, that's really to the point. Now, some of you are already saying, what is this? Where's he, where's he coming with this? Because we don't see any of this in this passage. Well, you do, but you just don't realize it. In verse 2, we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Now, none of us would have been surprised if Paul had said, I sent Timothy, my co-worker, in Christ. We'd expected that. But Paul throws a slur now they're calling it a sweeper in baseball. What that means is it's a big old horizontal curveball that you think is going to take your head off and it ends up in the dirt, off the plate, away from you. And that's what Paul just did because he says he's a co-worker with God. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. We don't like that bumper sticker that says God is my co-pilot. No, you're right, and that's bad theology. Because I want God piloting, and I want God driving. I don't want to wrestle with him in the cockpit, okay? But here we're talking about something different. Here we, get, we have the doctrine of second causes or the use of means. I heard R.C. Sproul years ago talking about evangelism. Someone... For the upteenth time, it asked Sproul, you know, Sproul, you're a Calvinist. Uh, no, you're not. You don't like that term. You're an Augustinian. All right, big deal. You're an Augustinian, Sproul, and you say that, that we're supposed to evangelize. Why? If God's going to save his people anyway, why evangelize? We might get in the way. We might mess things up. And Sproul told this story. 
that when he was a student at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, his mentor, Dr. John Gerstner, had a practice. Every day you come into his class and you would sit down and, and he would begin, Gerstner would begin with a question. And he would go around the room until it was answered or not. And so you always wanted to sit somewhere in the middle. You didn't want to be over here because Gerstner might say, Mr. Prater, and issue the question. Or he might say, Mr. Schmidt, let's start with you. And then until it was answered, he'd work through the classroom. So Sproul said, you always wanted to sit in the middle because either it would get answered or he'd get tired of the wrong answers and he would answer it for us. He said, but on this, on this day, he starts with this question. If God has ordained those whom he will save, why do we evangelize? If it's certain anyway, why do we evangelize? And he started over here. Sproul said, I was so, so agitated because I got there late and I had to sit on the very end of the row. So I thought, man, if he starts with me, this is a bad day. And said, but he started over here. And the first guy, yeah, blah, 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 blah. And Gerstner didn't stop until he got over here. And he said, Mr. Sproul, do you want to take a guess at this? And Sproul says, I said, well, could it have anything to do with God telling us to? And Gerstner's reply was, Mr. Sproul, it's got everything to do with God telling you to. That's the answer to the question. God tells us to evangelize. God tells us to, to love one another. God tells us to bear one another's burdens. God tells us to do good to all men. God tells us. Why? God's going to take care. We just read he's going to do good and evil. He's going to send rain and he's going to withhold rain. But he's also told us to do. Timothy was a co-worker with God. Isn't that remarkable to think about? That each of you, each of us, is a co-worker with God. And he doesn't need us. But he's pleased to use us. Isn't that way with parents? I remember when the kids were little, we started this thing. I detested paying for the trash pickup. So I decided, you know what? Saturday mornings, we'll, I'll get a couple extra trash cans down at the Lowe's, and we will, we'll keep our trash. And on Saturdays, that trash will go into big 39-gallon bags, and we'll set those in the back of the minivan, and we'll put the, the, the boxes that have plastic and, and aluminum and, and cans and glass and paper and we'll go to the convenience center and we will, I'll let the kids, they'll be the ones collect the trash on Saturday morning. We'll get it all together. We'll go, we'll have a time having fun at the convenience center. Then we'll go to Chick-fil-A and we'll get breakfast. Then we'll go to Tractor Supply or Lowe's or Home Depot and get what we need for chores today. And then we'll go home and we'll, we'll chore a while and then we'll play a while. 
the boys particularly loved it because they had the, the pleasure of taking the recycle stuff and chunking it into those big open spaces into the dumpsters. Kaz got so good, he could throw the bottles right through from one side to the other and send his little brother around to pick it up on the other side and put it back in. You say, what's that got to do with it? Well, it's got everything to do with this because, see, I could have taken care of the trash a whole lot easier and faster than waiting on my three children and then my two sons after Sophie was helping mom around the house. She soon learned, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll help mom around the house. I could have done all that much quicker. I could have been to the convenience center, read my Bible at Chick-fil-A, been back home, been in the middle of my, my, my things I wanted to get done a whole lot faster. But it wouldn't have been good for my children. They were my coworkers. And they learned to do because they were my coworkers. They learned the responsibility. They learned to love doing these things. And if, if you doubt that, you can ask them. They did learn, love to learn it because there was so much fun had with it all. So this is second causes. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. Again, listen to the confession. Although in relation to foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and fallibly, yet by the same providence he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, necessarily, freely, or contingently. So in the gospel work, you and I are the second causes. And that's a doctrine that we believe, and that we preach and teach. And you should do that. Amazing thought, though, isn't it? Well, fourth, sovereignty and second causes. Fourth is communion of saints endures hardships and separation. The communion of saints endures hardship and separation. Now, if you'll turn in your, your books, if you want to read along, I'm going to go again to the chapter on communion of saints which is on page 864 chapter 26 of the confession all saints that are united to jesus christ their head by his spirit and by faith have fellowship with him in his graces sufferings death resurrection and glory and being united to one another in love they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties public and private as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and the outward man. Saints, by profession, are bound to maintain an holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, 
which communion as God offers opportunity is to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. We'll stop there. Because something you see there is the communion of saints is not just limited to this communion, this local body. Did you notice that? As, as, as much as we have opportunity, our communion extends beyond the membership of Covenant Presbyterian Church. It extends into our presbytery, our sister churches. It goes beyond our presbytery to our churches in the General Assembly. It goes beyond into our, our sister churches in Napark. And it goes beyond to all churches that are true churches. You see, all through this passage, the communion of, of saints is sprinkled in here. Did you notice that? He says, uh, beginning... In verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news. Now, what's this about? Well, he just told us that I couldn't, I couldn't stand it any longer. I didn't know what was going on with you. I was afraid you were being, being persecuted and that your faith might even be affected by it. So physical concern as well as spiritual concern. And so he sends Timothy. And now Timothy has come back and we've learned that you're doing well. And we have been comforted about you through your faith. What thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what's lacking in your faith. And then he goes on, Now, may the, grace of, uh, may the, may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. So that he may establish your hearts blameless. All that's communion of saints, isn't it? The concern for one another. The love for one another. Uh, by faith, having fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death. He talks about his concern for them in the persecutions that were going on. Their concerns for them in their faith. His concerns for the way they were treating one another. And living with one another. And did you notice... It's not just the church that he was working with then in Athens, but it extended back to the Thessalonian church as well. So our communion, it's no wonder that many of you pray for saints all over this world. That's the communion of saints at work in you. That's, that's you living out this chapter in our confession. That's you living out this passage of scripture in 1 Thessalonians Chapter 3. Did you notice that even though they've been afflicted and even though they've suffered in distress, they've stayed on target. They've stayed on track. They've persevered. The communion of saints perseveres. Hardship, distress, persecution does not end the communion of saints. In fact, if anything, hardship and difficulties only, only brings us closer together, doesn't it? It brings us closer together as we pray for one another. It brings us closer together as we, as we pull together to do for people. For instance, when we've had those special requests from time to time. We learn about something going on in the life of one of our, 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 our friends out in the mission world, out in the extensions of the earth. 
whether there's someone that we support financially or someone we know and we pray for, we find out they have a special need. And what do we do? Well, we tell you. The elders learn about it. The deacons learn about it. We tell you. Maybe a diaconal need. It may be a, a, another need of some kind. We tell you. And what happens? It draws us together and we provide for that. None of us individually, perhaps, could send like we did a few years ago at the drop of a hat. None of us could send $15,000 to Peru for a well. There'd be some in this room that could, perhaps could write a check for that just right now. But most of us, no. But that need in the communion of saints beyond these walls pulled us all together and we were able to within three weeks send a check for that amount. And now I'm going to be going with Pastor Roland Barnes next month. We're going to be going to Chulacanus where they drill that well and I won't be drinking that water. I'll be drinking the bottled water because my system doesn't receive their water well. It's the reason we don't eat lettuce and other things that can't be scrubbed nice and clean. But they're drinking that water now, a provision, a diaconal provision that we made because of the communion of saints. We're united to Christ, and through Christ, we're united to one another in love. You notice, too, in the communion point, just very briefly, how that Paul longed to be with them. It reminds you... We read last week from Psalm 42 how David, who was separated from the church, longed to be with them, going up with them. Psalm 42, he longed to go up with them as he had in the past and worship God together and be with them. And how his heart was pained by the fact that he couldn't do that. That's the reason when you're away with sickness or you're traveling and you, 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 you get someplace on the next Sunday or someplace else, you think, oh, I'd love to be home right now. I'd love to be with the saints at Covenant. Perhaps it's even a good church and you're like, yeah, I, I'm so thankful for a church like this, but I miss Covenant. That's the communion of saints that's, that's put in our hearts. That's what we desire. That's the reason it's absolutely impossible for a person to say, I'm a Christian and I have nothing for the church. God doesn't save people like that. When God saves people, he adopts them into the family of God, and that's who they love. God puts that love in our hearts. He doesn't leave that out. That's not something we develop. That's not something we can conjure up. That's part of the redemptive process. He saves people. He makes them different. New creatures the Bible says. They love the communion of saints. They long for the communion of saints. And nothing can render that asunder. Well, finally, and very briefly, because we're going to come back to this next week, the holiness of saints is part of the already not yet. Now, let me explain the already not yet. Some of you may be uh, uh, not familiar with that, but I can illustrate it with... Um, many doctrines in the Bible, but I'll do it with one. 
Well, I'll do it with two. Uh, the, 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 the coming of Christ and the effects of, of Christ coming to this earth. We believe that Christ inaugurated the kingdom of God, right? I mean, Jesus said so in Luke 17, the kingdom is in your midst. He didn't say shall be in your midst. He used the present tense. Why? Because he was in their midst and he's the king of the kingdom. You're a king, Pilate said. That's what they're telling me. Yes, that's why I came, he said. The king has a kingdom. And by the way, he says elsewhere, my kingdom is not of this world. Don't be thinking so materialistically, naturalistically, that you miss the point, Jesus says. But is the kingdom fully realized? No. Sin's still present. Satan has not been has not been put away finally as we saw this morning. So the kingdom's already, but it's not yet in its final fulfillment. That'll come when Christ comes the second time, the new heavens and new earth. That's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Another easy one is the doctrine of adoption. The Bible says we're already children of God. We've been adopted. But we also learn in Romans 8 that the creation, the whole created order is groaning even now, longing for its restoration. And Paul tells us that will happen when? When we realize our adoption, the adoption of our bodies. See, we're already adopted, but we're not yet adopted. We're already children of God, but we haven't realized our full inheritance. Part of that full inheritance is our glorified body, Romans 8 says. Part of it is that which we have in the new heavens and the new earth. The latter chapters of Isaiah are all about this. What's not yet, but what's already begun. So that's what we're talking about with the already not yet. It's a, it's, a, it's a doctrine that's run through the whole of scriptures. Christ, there was a, there's a sense in which Christ, there was an already not yet in Christ. While he was eternal in the heavens, he's, he's seen in those types and figures of the Old Testament, but he's not yet come. But he was already at work in the Old Testament saints. The Holy Spirit had not come in fullness in the Old Testament. Jesus says he will come in fullness. And he did at Pentecost and is now working in his, in his fullness in redemptive history. So we begin to realize the already not yet. This earth is being redeemed already. But it's not yet the new heavens and new earth. It hasn't been fully purified according to Second Peter chapter 3. So here in verse 13 of chapter 3, he alludes to this. He says that all this is so that, verse 13, for this purpose, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. When? At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. 
What, we're not already holy? Yeah, we're already holy. In fact, he says so in this very passage. He says, uh, back up in, in verse 10, uh, 9 rather, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly. I'm sorry, I started too late. Uh, back up in verse 6 is where I meant to read. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly. Faith and love. That's, that's another way of speaking of their holiness. He wrote to the church at Corinth. There was a greatly troubled church. A church with a number of problems. But he begins in verse in the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians, he calls them saints. He says, I'm writing to you who are sanctified. Present tense. You are sanctified. You are holy. Sanctified, sanctification, holy, holiness, all synonyms. Hagiosmos, the same root word that you get all those words from. Growing in grace we talk about. They're already growing in grace. But they wouldn't realize the fullness of that grace at work in them. Their holiness until the second coming. We're already holy, but we're not yet holy. And every Christian feels that, don't they? Don't you? Don't you already feel that? You know, I, I know. I know I'm holy because the Bible says I am. And I know I'm growing in grace because God has promised that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That bring it to completion entails he's working in us now. He's causing us to be more and more holy. Our thoughts are becoming more holy. Yeah, there may be some three steps forward and two steps back. There may even be three steps forward and two and a half steps back. There may be three steps forward and fall flat on your face. But there's this there's this movement of holiness that's at work in us because God has said there would be. Back to the authority of Scripture. God said it. That settles it. Well, I don't always feel very holy. Well, you shouldn't. And I shouldn't because we sin. But that's got nothing to do with us being holy. The fact that we're holy is because God says we are. And because he's working in us. He tells us to work at our salvation with fear and trembling. And then he gives us this wonderful, because you're just like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I am or not. And he says, but it's, it's God who's at work in you to will, that is to want to, and to do his good pleasure. God's at work in me. That's what it says. Now, you can argue with God all you want, but that doesn't change the fact. God's at work in us, making us more holy. But we won't be as holy as we want to be and as holy as we can be until that day when Christ comes again. So we should look forward to that, shouldn't we? Everyone in this room who's a believer in Christ should say, you know, I really long for that day. Because I I, I'm looking forward to being holy. Because I don't like, 
I don't like the version of holy I am right now. It leaves a lot to be desired. All of us could say that. Timothy had brought us good news of your faith and love. That's sanctification, dear saint. And then pursuing holiness. Remember the Hebrews passage. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. There's none of this business of being justified, living ordinary lives, and then getting to go to heaven at the end. No, God's at work in us right now. Every point in between the time you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ to start with and when you, either through death or through the second coming of Christ, enter into his presence, he's at work growing us more and more into the image of Christ. Because that's what salvation is. Salvation is not a ticket to heaven. Salvation is about holiness. It's about God making us holy. Now. That's the reason it's called eternal salvation. It's not about out yonder somewhere. It's about now. And at every point along the punctiliar line, he's doing that. He's working in us. And again, don't always feel that way. We may not always look that way. But God's at work in us if we're in Christ Jesus because he promised he would be. I'm confident of this very thing, Paul said, that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. So those are some of the doctrine that are embedded in this passage of pastoral concern that Paul's expressed. The question is, as we, as we think about, okay, so doctrine is embedded in all we think and do. That's right. There's doctrine in everything you think and do. There's a theology at work in everything you think and do. The question is, is it good doctrine? Is it sound doctrine? What we've extracted today, this morning, this evening, from this pastoral literary unit is sound doctrine. So don't miss it. Grow in it. Revisit it. Think about it. And God will keep on doing his work. And we will keep on being his fellow workers. So that his glory might be known throughout this, this globe. Thank you, Father, for this evening. We pray that you would bless our time. And send us out in this evening to enjoy you and glorify you forever. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.